Welcome to the Abstract Doctors Podcast Special, the Abstract Veterans Series. Today, Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal speak with Dr. William Walker. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit the Abstract Doctors for information and upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors Podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say ah. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to our fifth, I believe it's five anyway, series or installment rather, our abstract veteran series. Um, I'm your co-host, Char Gatlin, with the my always pragmatic co-host, Dr. Ron Seal. What we're doing again is we're looking at the Brain Injury Manuscript Special Edition publications, and we're attempting to bring scientific research to the masses in a humanistic and harmonious way. Well, we're giving it the old college try anyway. The idea here is to break down the science and put it out to our listeners in ways that they can understand, sometimes without all of the technical speak that goes with it. So with that, we'd like to welcome back uh, Mr. Bill Walker, excuse me, Dr. Bill Walker, who is our guest on a previous show. I think Dr. Walker has the unique position of having two manuscripts on this. I think he's the, he's the only one. So congratulations, Dr. Walker, for outdoing your peers and coming back to us twice on our, on our show. We're glad to have you. Um, so with that, let's just dive right in. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing with this particular submission and, um, you know, where you see it going. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for uh, having me again, putting up with me twice <laughs> on one series. But um, this particular study um, looked at um, a, a, a problem. Um, well, well, let me let me step back a second. Um, so with chronic mild traumatic brain injury, uh, patients who've had prior mild traumatic brain injuries, um, there's many lingering, persisting problems they can have. And um, what we try to identify as providers is um, things that we can help them get better with ways, uh, treatable aspects of their problems. So um, one theory is that some individuals have persisting problems because of endocrine abnormalities. Um, specifically pituitary disorders. So what we did was try to determine um, whether or not one or more prior mild traumatic brain injuries does increase your risk for pituitary disorders and um, also who to potentially identify to um, assess for a pituitary disorder that may need treatment. So that's kind of essentially what, what we did in a, in a nutshell. And Bill, are, are, are these type of neuroendocrine disorders, if memory is correct, there is a little bit of an increased uh, rate of these disorders when people have more severe traumatic brain injuries? Right. So um, most of what we know about endocrine disorders after traumatic brain injury has to do with um, more severe injuries. Um, so we uh, don't know a lot about mild traumatic brain injuries, which is why we did this. Um, some studies have suggested that even mild traumatic brain injuries can chronically um, increase your risk for pituitary disorders. Um, so the, the mechanism that this happens can be, there are several theories. Um, so um, the pituitary gland is, about the size of a chickpea, and it sits 
it in the middle of your brain. Um, it's connected by, by a stalk, by a very thin stalk. Um, so it's kind of like having a chickpea on a string <laughs> and it's connected to the hypothalamus, um, which is in the midbrain. Um, and so um, the pituitary gland signals um, for various um, glands and um, body systems to produce hormones. So for example, um, uh, the hypothalamus kind of brings in, brings it all together. It's sort of the gateway. So the, um, the stalk carries nerves and, and vessels from the hypothalamus to the pituitary. So the, pitu the um, hypothalamus may signal to the pituitary through those nerve connections that that, hey, um, you know, I, I need some more um, um, thyroid um, hormone. Um, so what it does is it sends signals to the pituitary, which then releases um, some neurochemicals to, into the um, bloodstream to tell the thyroid gland to make more uh, uh, thyroid um, hormones. So, the, 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 the precursor um, hormone is thyroid stimulating hormone. So in essence, the um, hypothalamus signals to the pituitary to release thyroid stimulating hormone that goes through the blood, reaches your thyroid gland, and then it starts you know, making um, thyroid. Now there's a feedback loop so that um, then the thyroid that does get eventually made gets signaled back to um, eventually back to the hypothalamus to be able to tell it when to turn off or when to turn on production of thyroid hormone. So that's kind of essentially how it works. And what we think happens with traumatic brain injury is with the acute injury, um, because of the forces that stalk gets damaged. The nerves and, and, and blood vessels might get damaged in that very thin stalk by getting stretched or, or pulled. And um, also the pituitary gland, that little chickpea sits, is encased. It's, it sits within a um, kind of socket, like your hip socket, and it's bone around it. So it can get compressed, it can get pressurized. So the gland itself can also get, get damaged. And thirdly, there's a neurologic stress response um, that can get imparted. The hypothalamus is important um, in, the, in the stress reaction, particularly like fear reaction. So it's, part, it's a major part of the limbic system, which is interesting because that's the acronym for our consortium is limbic. But limbic is known by neuroscientists as being kind of the center for controlling um, your stress response. It brings in um, an emotional component to it. And, and it's, it's responsible for you sensing fear when something threatening is happen, happening to you, for example. And so those are, those are the theories um, about why the uh, pituitary gland can get injured. And like I said, there's convincing evidence that it gets it, it, it commonly gets damaged in severe TBI, particularly acutely. Um, chronically, we still see some people um, with problems after severe traumatic brain injury, but we don't 
um, know the extent that this is a problem with mild traumatic brain injury, which is why we studied it. So Bill, are some of the symptoms or conditions that, um, that veterans or service members might have if they had damage to the pituitary, it doesn't necessarily mean the pituitary or the stalk was causing it, um, but some of the symptoms that might be caused by uh, damage to the pituitary or disruption of those neuroendocrine systems, it would be sort of like things like energy level, um, maybe fear response related to PTSD, some of those type of things? Right. It's, so it, it depends on what aspect of the system gets disrupted. Um, the um, most commonly reported um, abnormalities um, after mild TBI, but like I said, it's a lot of these are, you know, case series. And so the evidence is not, um, it's not definitive evidence, but the ones the, the studies that have looked at that have implicated um, growth hormone deficiency, um, hypothyroidism, and um, hypogonadism, um, which is low testosterone, um, as being the most common abnormalities. So, um, when um, typically, and, and with those three conditions, all of them can lead to poor energy levels, fatigue. Um, now they also can have some more, um, I guess some more things that are, that might be more specific to the endocrine system, like, uh, for example, hair loss or cold intolerance, those sorts of things that, um, might, you know, um, even if you didn't have a TBI, right, you might think about as being a potential, um, a disorder of your thyroid or testosterone um, or um, growth hormone. Yeah, so um, in a nutshell, um, the symptoms for these conditions can be very nonspecific. So one of the problems clinically as a clinician, if I have someone having a complaint, let's say it's fatigue um, and they've had a prior mild traumatic brain injury, you know, whether or not I should screen that person for these neuroendocrine disorders. That's, that's the kind of thing I'm looking at because it, if, um, um, if it's not an indication of that, you're putting a person through potentially unnecessary tests that they don't need. Um, sometimes unnecessary tests lead to a lot of other bad things happening. <laughs> um, in terms of you know not only the increased cost and also just the stress of going through um, some workup that you don't need, but um, actually it can lead to saying, oh, well, okay, well, now we have this finding, and so it can lead to another test and then a series of tests, um, and um, all of it may have been unnecessary. So that's that's why we that's why we're looking at we we also of course wanted to know, okay, is there some set of symptoms or problems that might indicate this is someone you should screen because there, there's a good chance that you might find an endocrine disorder that you can treat and help them get better by addressing it. A lot of the, uh, the symptomatology that you just mentioned and in looking over a list here of the endocrine disorders, you know, can be, can be attributed to age and with an OIF, OEF population, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're, we're starting to get into middle age to some extent. What is the uh, the mean age of the population that you were studying? 
Uh, the mean age um, when when individuals enroll is in the, in the low to mid forties. Okay. Um, on average, we we have a range um, anywhere from I guess probably the mid twenties to mid sixties is um, is is the general range we have. So yeah. Yeah, that's squarely in the range of a, a, a veteran population. Uh, a follow up question too, in, in reading over the abstract and some of the. Uh, some of the literature that I saw, you're focusing on blast injury. Have you ever looked at or decided to maybe down the road look at impact as it relates to this problem? We do um, have data collected. Um, unfortunately, that we uh, I'm I'm guessing you are you talking about like um, uh, athletic repetitive low level head injuries like you might get in football? Is that what you, you're- You could get that or a direct impact injury that results in a mild TBI from a- Oh, right, explosion, right. explosive device, yeah. or just an accident. So, yeah, good question. Um, the, the mild traumatic brain injuries come in all shapes and forms. And yes. what our evaluation, we try to fully assess each one they had during their life. And so, um, for example, um, one subject may have had three prior traumatic, mild traumatic brain injuries. One of them might have been a pure blast in, uh, injury. One of them might have been a blast plus impact injury, and one of them might have been a pure blunt injury. And we have we have all of that um, identified and labeled in our system so that we can um, analyze it. Um, I think, you know, blast injury is a unique injury to the military population. And that's one of the reasons, you know, we often focus that in terms of our analysis, because um, 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 otherwise we, you know, just be replicating a lot of um, work that might be done in the civilian population and the findings may not, you know, be, be of special uh, relevance to the military population because, Blast is certainly kind of the signature um, uh, um, type of mild traumatic brain injury or any traumatic brain injury that's more unique to the military population. And another difficulty, is, I think I discussed in a past episode, is that a lot of times in a, in a, in a military you know, combat ops population, especially if you're looking at self-reported data, a lot of the concussions and, and insults aren't, aren't reported, um, not only because A, they don't want to, but B, they may not know. You know, I can remember yeah, absolutely, growing up in, in the infantry, um, we just get banged up a lot. You know, it's just uh, right. part of the course. Right. Yeah, that that's a huge focus of our evaluation. We've, um, from some prior research of mine, developed a um, lengthy, um, structured interview process to um, determine each incident where someone potentially had a concussion to determine, you know, whether or not to the best of, you know, our scientific ability make that determination whether or not each one of those was a concussion. So we try to jog the memory with um, prompts about prior incidents. And so we we first just ask open-ended about any time they may have had a brain injury or head injury. But we also then deliver a series of prompts about scenarios like, were you ever, um, was your head or neck ever injured in, a, in an assault? or in a motor vehicle accident, or in um, you know, a playground accident, uh, and on and on. So we um, try to you know, jog people's memory about prior events that they may have forgotten about. And every time we identify an event, then we pivot to an additional interview 
to, to try to um, determine, like I said, as best we can, um, if that was a mild traumatic brain injury or not. So what, uh, Bill, are your, uh, what, what, uh, what were your primary findings from this uh, research study? Um, yeah, so basically um, what we found, there was three labs that we looked at. Um, let, so basically um, in terms of um, the data that we looked at, we looked at questionnaires, we looked at some neuropsychological testing, some cognitive testing, and we looked at some lab results. Now, when we uh, for this study, one of the one of the um, um, assessments we do is drawing blood for biospecimens. Um, some of that blood, most of it, actually gets sent to our central uh, uh, bio uh, uh, biospecimen core, um, and that's actually in 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 Washington um, at Walter Reed. Um, and that laboratory um, does really, you know, advanced um, analyses of various biomarkers. Example might be protein or inflammatory breakdown products that might signal um, neuroinflammation or neurodegeneration so that we can study pathogenesis um, of what's going on. We also send um, a small amount of that blood to a actually clinical lab to measure some commonly done clinical tests. And that's what we looked at in this study. And the three tests um, that we looked at were um, the testosterone level, um, thyroid stimulating hormone, and um, uh, IGF-1, which is uh, um, growth factor um, to look at um, growth hormone deficiency. Um, so those are the, I mentioned earlier, those are the conditions that are most commonly implicated. And so that's why we chose and those, they're all commonly, commonly available in clinical labs, those tests. And so clinicians often use those as part of their screening battery for um, neuroendocrine disorders after traumatic brain injury. Um, what we found was we found once we controlled for other variables like age and weight um, and PTSD, we found there was really no relationship um, between the levels of those lab, those lab values and their traumatic brain injury history, their mild. So in essence, mild traumatic brain injury did not increase your risk of having abnormal lab screening labs. So it looks like those labs um, don't have much value in our patient population, um, service members and veterans with mild traumatic brain injury histories. Furthermore, the other key finding was that there was really no symptoms or clinical um, uh, attributes that were associated with the ones that did have abnormal labs. So it does not look like there's a way a clinician could actually easily pick out who might have one of these disorders because some people did have abnormal screening labs. Now that doesn't mean they necessarily have the clinical condition. If your um, uh, um, IGF level is low, that doesn't necessarily mean you have growth hormone deficiency. That's just a way to try to screen for it. Um, so, but, um, what it, what it tells me as a clinician is 
Um, I'm going to think twice about ordering tests um, and telling someone they have to go through a, go through a lab test that is probably so. Um, I think what we need to do as clinicians is not really consider mild traumatic brain injury as a risk factor of when you're deciding to get these tests. Um, if you suspect these, if you suspect these um, pituitary disorders just on their own accord, um, then you know certainly they're important um, to assess for and treat. Um, but right, so um, mild. So we what we found did not support an association between the TBI history, essentially. I think and a lot of veterans out there would be interested to hear that because I can remember, you know, going through after I was, I was hurt. I've given enough blood to keep a blood bank going for the probably the next five, <laughs> five or five or six years. Um, but with that, uh, you know, the, so I don't want to say the lack of results or the lack of findings. You know, but what you've come across. I mean, what do you see in possibly the next step or the evolution of this study? I mean, is there a, an idea yeah, so, um, of other disorders or? Right. Um, there's a couple of things that limitations of this study. Um, sometimes you may have a subtle, um, let's take a look at growth hormone deficiency. And our, what we found is only 1% of, of the whole cohort had low IG, IGF-1, which is the, um, now what we did was we just drew blood statically, meaning um, um, with your endocrine system, um, it has to adapt to um, various stresses. So it's like if you're, you know, if you're driving a car and it, it does well on a flat surface, but it can't climb the hill, that's a problem, right? So um, there's so-called provocative tests that may be able to detect more subtle abnormalities. So we think the next step was, well, you know, maybe because of our limitation, maybe there is a connection that we weren't able to identify. Um, and so a, a, a next step might be performing provocative tests so that you would um, do, do something, manipulation to stress the system, so, to tell it to produce more, and then measure the production after that of the hormone. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is to look at changes over time. Um, we did a cross-sectional analysis, meaning we drew blood and we compared it to their clinical markers at the same time. Um, so, but it would be, uh, what we need to also do is look at those um, individuals who have um, those lab abnormalities and perhaps over time, they will develop some clinical symptoms or problems that we weren't able to identify in this study. So those are some additional lines of study that can be done just to um, determine at a, with a little higher level of proof whether or not this is an issue after mild traumatic brain injury. Bill, in uh, reading your results, I, you know, th thinking uh, uh, with a clinician's hat on, um, you know, so if you were looking to decide who should get uh, uh, blood work uh, for potential uh, neuroendocrine issues, what, what jumped out at me in the data uh, was that, uh, again, you know, if the person had a mild TBI, that wouldn't drive the decision, but it looked as though older age and obesity would be 
uh, two factors that, in particular, if you saw both of them there, uh, you know that that you would uh, probably at least consider um, uh, obtaining blood work. Is that accurate to say? Well, that that's a little tricky because um, there's um, the horm the hormone levels change with age. A good example is testosterone. As as men get older, their testosterone level goes down. Um, so um, that, you know, that gets into, you know, whether a low level in, in old age compared to young is a clinical problem, or is that just normal? Yeah, is that just aging, uh, normal aging? So that that's one of the caveats of that. Um, and obesity. Oh, so the, so yeah, those are so scores, it, they're not, um, they're not normalized scores? Well, the age range cutoffs are very gross. It's not like um, gotcha. this gets into the complexities of adjusting for it. Like in some, some neuropsych tests, you know, are age adjusted. Others are just like under 65, older 65, boom, boom. And it doesn't, doesn't work like that, right? You just don't all of a sudden fall off a cliff. It kind of gradually goes down with age. And so I think that's part of what we're seeing there with the, with the, uh, with the obesity, I think that in part has to do with, um, what the circulating versus, um, what gets kind of trapped in your, in your, um, adipose tissue. Um, so in other, in other words, um, it may not actually reflect, um, circulating level, the circulating levels may not actually reflect um, what's actually going on. So no, I don't know that those two things in itself uh, um, would, would cause you to, um, you know, make your decision about whether you order the tests or not. So, okay. yeah. It's interesting when you, you mentioned the age adjusted, you know, this is kind of an odd analogy, but, you know, coming out of the military, at 45, it's kind of tough for me to run the 18 to 21 year old, you know, PT bracket. I have no clue yeah. what the runtime is for the 69 to 75 year old participant either. And then, you know, the obesity standards, the uh, tape phase as you get older, you know, you're allowed a little more leverage or a little more leeway rather when it comes to, to body fat and mm -hmm. things like that. So it's, while that seems kind of simplistic, I think maybe a lot of our listeners will, will understand it, you know, when you look at it through through that lens. Fascinating stuff though. I mean, fascinating stuff, hands down. So Bill, what are your take home messages from this study? What do you want people to walk away with? Um, so I, th I think that, you know, um, first of all, these, these, are co these are not uncommon conditions. Well, particularly hypothyroidism, right? Very hypo and hyperthyroidism are both um, very common in the general population. So, um, you know, what I don't want to take away is to be is that we don't need to worry about <laughs> endocrine disorders. <laughs> but I, 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 the takeaway should be that um, there's really no great proof um, to date that having a prior concussion raises your risk of, uh, of an endocrine disorder. So I don't think um, that we need to think about mild traumatic brain injury as, um, um, you know, raising the flag for getting a bunch of tests. Um, un unfortunately, um, 
we're seeing actually there's actually some clinical practice guidelines um, uh, that that are put out actually by uh, the Defense Center of Excellence um, in the military medical system about um, guidelines for screening for um, neuroendocrine disorders after mild traumatic brain injury, um, which is kind of one of the reasons um, I wanted to study this. And also I noticed in my clinical practice um, that as, as this information got out there, this possible link that I was ordering a lot of endocrine lab batteries on patients and not really coming up with much that was helpful <laughs> uh, in terms of their treatment. So um, I questioned as a provider, I after um, starting to order a lot of these based on um, some of these um, lower levels of evidence that were in the literature and that was getting pushed out in clinical practice guidelines, um, you know, I'm a little bit of a skeptic, but I, I, I said, well, let me, you know, I, I want to do everything I can for my patients. So maybe there's something here. And so, uh, but I, after many negative tests or also findings that, you know, were not really actionable, but caused um, some angst among my patients about how to deal with them, um, then, um, you know, we decided to um, measure these in our in our study and study this issue. So this is a it's a first step. It's not a definitive step, but um, the takeaway is that so far there's not really good evidence. So I don't think you need to consider mild traumatic brain injury history in your decision making about you know whether or not you're going to assess someone for a possible uh, neuroendocrine disorder. Well, interesting stuff. Well, I think that more or less brings us to the end of our segment. Um, Dr. Walker, I'd like to thank you for your time, your candor, uh, your understanding, and, and what comes across as your passion for helping uh, improve existing circumstance for our veteran population. Um, we enjoyed having you on here. Thank you for coming on. We look forward to seeing you again, for sure. But from the team, thank you for what you do. We really, we really, really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the discussion. Yeah. Any closing thoughts there, Ron? Uh, just that a lot of times uh, when we're doing research, we think about uh, finding uh, positive uh, relationships between variables or things that we should be doing as, as, as being the primary focus. But I think this is a really good example of research that... Um, uh, that that provides information so that we're not perhaps doing unnecessary tests. So, no, uh, absolutely, great study. absolutely. So, thank you once again for being here, and to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. You heard it here first on the Abstract Veteran series with Char Gatlin, my co-host, uh, Dr. Ron Seal, and the Invisible Team up top. You know, the Colonel, Miss AC, and then obviously Ron in the box. We look forward to seeing you next time. Tune in and until then, have a nice day. Thank you to Dr. William Walker for joining Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal today on the Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veteran Series. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. 
The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for our next appointment soon.